everybody to another episode of Skeptically Inclined Science Podcast. Uh, I'm your co-host Tom. And I'm Evan. Uh, welcome to our new episode. Uh, hi Evan, how are you today? I'm good, good. Um, as good as I can be, I suppose, going into winter and with all this yeah. uh, crazy stuff that seems to be going on in the world right now. Um, I know. What are you going to talk about to- on today's episode before we sure. jump in? Sure. So today, my scientific news is a story, is a love story that has repercussions 60,000 years into the future. Wow. And, and uh, for my uh, main part of the uh, episode, I'm going to talk about diabetes, specifically about a disease in the dish model, and also how loneliness and type 2 diabetes uh, go together. Mm. How you eat your feelings, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> some people. Yes, maybe. exactly. Yeah, I think it's especially relevant now during the second lockdown that is happening. Mm. Um, how about you, Ev? Yeah, so uh, I'm going to just touch on uh, these new uh, diagnostic, rapid diagnostic tests that are being um, kind of released now for uh, detecting uh, SARS-CoV-2. Um, I just think it's interesting now as well when all the cases are rising, what's what's out there. And how do they compare to uh, the current testing of uh, real-time PCR? It's very hard to avoid the corona topic, isn't it? Yes, it just keeps, yes. keeps resurfacing. I know, yeah. Well, especially now that the president of the US has got the... has been diagnosed, I think. I think I, I'm allowed to go back to my COVID-19 stories. But I know <laughs> I temporarily shifted my interest last week, but... Um, unfortunately yeah not unfortunately i think it's still super interesting it's important yeah, yeah. It's people interesting people and important know. before I, we touch on that actually the, with the u.s with trump i we, i forgot to mention the last time that you got a new tattoo in dedication to the podcast yes i got i got some fresh ink done on my left non-scientific arm and ha. it's the um it's headphones microphone and sound uh sound waves yeah you need to put it up on their instagram page i think oh yeah yeah i wanted to show it to the camera but sure we're not streaming the video <laughs> <laughs> not yet <laughs> not yet anyway yeah and uh ho- i also i also got some uh new art into my living room slash studio so hopefully um, one once it's gonna arrive i'll be able to post it as well oh what it's what did you get i don't want to say oh. but uh it's done it's done to kind of uh, uplift spirits and it's done for a good mental health which is really uh which is really important these days so yeah. that was my reasoning behind it it's like full of positive energy uh art that is really cute and it's if i look at it i think it's apple pie and i want to eat it yeah. the good vibes only good vibes only zone in yeah, my apartment yeah. yes yeah you want to kind of try and keep it uh especially going into winter now yes yes um, and as uh, well but as well i uh because i just uh i speak because your tattoo is like wasn't it the headphones and the music uh i have you been listening to any new music lately because i've just been listening and i started listening to this new uh band called Krangyabin. cringy bin no so uh, yeah we're definitely not going to be the podcast that can pronounce things right so we just have to embrace this but yeah they they have a weird name it's like Krang Krangubin Krangubin I I don't know exactly but okay. they just play uh it's like just a bassist guitarist and a, dr- a drummer 
and they would just play melodies really generally don't have much singing but it's like super like funky and groovy and uh the drummer is like they they joke on his youtube comments that he'd like if he got lost in the desert for years that he'd still know the time because he's so good at uh timing like his timing is so good and the guitarist is like he's insanely good as well so yeah it's just especially if you're like you just want to chill and you don't want it's just like something easy and to listen to i usually do it when i'm like reading slides at work um just oh. something that i just can like it's just in the background um but yeah they're they're really i would i would tell people to check them out definitely so okay well i, I did start listening to something that i haven't listened in a while and uh it's miley cyrus <laughs> I think. wow <laughs> <laughs> yeah Old school, st- old school Miley Cyrus or, or new stuff? Over 18 Miley Cyrus. And, well, uh, I, I, uh, I, no, I, I still think, like, some of her, I still think um, it's a, and a kind of a guilty pleasure that, um, what's it, Party in the USA. I still think that's a, a decent banger. Yeah. Right? But, you should uh, check out Mali- Malibu. Malibu, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty good. And other than that, I also been listening to Polish hip hop because, as you know, I have a bald head and I want to, like, kind of uh, reconnect with my uh with my old culture huh. so trying to listen to polish hip-hop trying few break into cars and stuff like that we'll see how it goes why uh, why would you break into cars it just comes with the culture and the heritage <laughs> not that it says polish more than hip-hop <laughs> yes <laughs> breaking cars yeah the, Germ- yeah the german cars german um, cars oh, okay <laughs> yeah but anyway every, all is good yeah, All is good. Yeah. Um, should we jump into the um, into the story, or do you wanna? Well, talk we'll about go into our headli- maybe the news headlines for the yeah, yeah, the week. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, as we've already mentioned, and it's I think it's the biggest news on the planet right now that Trump and Melania have tested positive for SARS-CoV-2. How did that happen? Yeah, who who could have seen it? Yeah, he he said. He, yeah, he had tested positive only hours after he claimed the end of the pandemic is in sight. <laughs> so it's definitely going to affect his re-election plans, I think, even if it is mild. But this is he's already now been admitted to hospital. So yes. I can't see it being... I don't think it's... If you're being admitted to hospital, I don't think you can count it as mild. Um, I don't know if you know this, but he has been administered some sort of experimental treatment as well as a dose of antibodies. Yeah, yeah. I thought that, yeah, the experimental treatment was the antibodies. Oh, I thought the antibodies were on top of the experimental treatment. So, okay, okay. I might have to check my sources. I don't know. Yeah, all I heard was Regeneron. Um, They actually have a, uh, they're a pharmaceutical company based on Limerick, actually, in Ireland. And they were... I think they were on about they were making antibodies for COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, because when I heard it so first, I was like, oh, he must be getting co- convalescent plasma. But then they were like, no, it's an experimental drug. And everyone was like, why is he getting an experimental drug when it's only mild? And why would you be doing that now? Um, but all, all I've heard now is that he's on, they've given him remdesivir, which mm. we're, we were skeptical of at the beginning. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah, it's just... Uh, it's it's a bit it's a bit weird um but i think he's in the best care anyways i think yeah he's he's in the best care because he's the leader of the free world yeah <laughs> yeah but um yeah it it just kind of like it it's just kind of a damning effect of 
everything that's been happening in the US. Like case numbers in the US stand at like 7.28 million. There's been nearly 208,000 deaths. Uh, and he had been, as recently of the 1st of October, Trump was meant, hoping to pack two rallies in Wisconsin and no one was wearing masks. Mm. Uh, and Wisconsin had been moved into a red category. So, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just ep- epitomizes how poor the response has been. Um, and uh, it's kind of interesting as well because it came on the back, the back of them trying to downplay the vi- pandemic worsening in the US. Uh, and on the 30th of September, the White House had announced that cruise ships may resume operations on the 31st of October overruling an order from the cdc that would have kept them docked until february and you know why this is because this economy is important to the swing states florida so he's only literally doing it to try and win the these voters back um and yeah robert redfield the cdc director has told friends he thinks he's going to be fired this week i don't think he'll be fired now because of him being admitted to hospital but um yeah, the New York Times said he was considering resigning if he was asked to oversee more policies harmful to public health. And a new Trump administration advertising campaign had stripped $300 million from the CDC budget, which was already, I think, most probably wiped. And the CDC money was just taken as Trump's own campaign is running low on funds and he had to pull adverts in several key states. And he's oh, basically... Wow. Instead of advancing a public health message, the campaign, the you, the money they're taking out is to basically is aimed at downplaying the pandemic threat in line with Trump's re-election message. Uh, and Redfield is confirmed to a congressional hearing that CDC will have no input into the advertiser's content. So it's just insane. And I, I don't think he can really run this message now. It's like, oh, it's it's not it's. We're, we're we're over it it's gone it's going down when he's after getting infected so i don't think anyone could believe him now no and i think if we like a little bit political at this point i don't know if you watched the debate but he he didn't renounce the white supremacy so i think nobody in the right mind would vote for him yeah. anyway at this point yeah. you just if someone doesn't renounce the white supremacy or any sort of supremacy you can't just vote for that you just can't as a if you mm-hmm. you like a sane person you know yeah. uh, but on the on the side of the good news from america uh lakers are 2-0 against miami heat in the nba finals oh so that's on now i didn't go that. lakers yes that's go lakers. lebron's team lebron and anthony davies bro this is what's happening wow yeah coming after the fourth rank hopefully it will happen for him yeah yeah it's it's been so uh a weird season i suppose for that yeah, but there was no uh, no cases of corona in the NBA bubble, so they must be doing something right. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah. As far as I know, there was no cases. And one of the players even uh, took a dip out and went to the stripper club and <laughs> still came, came back healthy, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, we... So what did you, away from Trump, I think if people are sick of hearing it, what, what, what other headlines have you heard? Okay, so um, my headline today... It's a, as I said, it's a love story. So I would like to set a mod for everyone out there listening right now. So let me tell you a love story. It's a sad love story that affects all of us. So sit comfortably, grab your partner, bar their hand or anything else that is grabbable. Light, light a candle. Light a candle, get a blankie. 
It all happened 60,000 years ago, where two hominoids, superficially very different, could not resist their love and they gave in to their passion that was stronger than the fire gently caressing the walls of the cave. So <laughs> you did really set the, a good mood there. I felt, Thank I you. felt goosebumps. Yeah, it's, uh, it's beautiful. Imagine like you making love there somewhere in the distance. You see, you hear like a cyber tiger yeah. gently making noises, whatever. But the two hominoids were obviously Homo sapiens and uh, our uh, dead long cousins, uh, Neanderthals. And what recently has been shown, um, a new data set was released from COVID-19 host genetics initiative, uh, where a region on chromosome three is the only region significantly associated with severe COVID-19 at the genome-wide level. And it's a, it's a quite, it's a quite large, uh, uh, region of DNA. I think it's, um, it's so big that there is multiple different genes inherited within that region. And, uh, and it's believed it's a gene flow in, inherited from the Neanderthals. So mm -hmm. they passed on this thing to us. And at the start, it was believed that the, um, uh, it is believed that the DNA from Neanderthals or the genetic material improved our immune system. So we didn't have to develop it from the scratch. So we kind of borrowed some from the Neanderthals. That's why we were able to overcome certain pathogens. But they think that in this, for in this scenario, the genetic material inherited from Neanderthals actually put us at higher risk of developing severe consequences from COVID-19. And how do they know that this is a gene flow? Well, because when they compare the, the genome of people from around um, uh, India and Bangladesh uh, area, uh, so that's where they found this, uh, these cases, versus people from different tribes in Africa, they notice that the Africans, they don't have that specific um, DNA region on chromosome three, which mm. shows that it's, it's, a, it's a gene flow coming from a, a different species. So that's why they try to explain why there's so many severe cases among the Bangladeshi population in UK, because all of them carry these, uh, this, this thing, this, this genetic material borrowed from the Neanderthals. Mm. Uh, so maybe it's because it, I, well, I don't, I actually don't know, but I think they're saying Africa isn't doing as bad for deaths. I suppose this could be underreporting. There's a lot of other risks, but maybe this could be one factor that they perhaps they lack yeah. this region. Yeah, and um, yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah, actually, all, in all of this COVID news, I, I hear America, I hear Asia, and I hear Europe, but I hear very little about Africa. I don't mm. really know how, I don't really know how African countries are doing. Well, the problem is, is that they don't really have the proper facilities to do testing, so obviously their numbers are going to be lower, so there's not really a good way of accurately representing what the population looks like. Um, I suppose that's kind of a way it'll tie into my story how these mm -hmm. rapid tests are trying to be developed just at least to at least have something to use mm -hmm. um, in the in the diagnosis. Can I can I ask you a question very quickly though? Yeah. So if you if you were a person knowing that the act of making love sixty thousand years into the future would affect the human race, ah. would you still do it? Like, would you? What, like in this scenario with, with COVID? Yeah, like if you know that you're going to make love to a beautiful lady and it's going to be very nice, but in 60,000 years, very nice, peop, very very nice. nice. people peop, people going to be suffering from something similar to what COVID is right now. Would you well, do it? Well, like I still think they, don't, they can't yeah, concretely say, oh, it's definitely causing more deaths. Like I don't think they've done a proper study to see it. So 
it's well, just like it's they think just... it's one factor so i'm still like yeah that that's fine like so think... you'll be like you'll be like yeah yeah i don't care i think it's fine do you know what i agree with you yeah. Sixty thousand years into the future you know how much time that is yeah. nobody w- nobody will know it was me <laughs> nobody knows i think it was multiple most probably humanoids yeah yeah so it's yeah. basically the like people who are most likely closest to neanderthals are, are, are a bigger risk well people well mm, i think in the right way to phrase it is the homo sapiens from the whatever region uh so in this case it's kind of region of croatia bangladesh asia uh, maybe south of europe that have interbred with neanderthals obviously they inherited some of their uh, genetic material and for and in this particular example this genetic material came out to be not advantageous uh mm. towards covid-19 uh i believe that african people don't have that problem because i don't think neanderthals were in africa i don't think they migrated that much south so even if they did maybe the interactions were not as strong as they were with within the europe so maybe that's why uh, that's why the african population is not affected by that particular variant but yeah yeah it's um but why did they know why uh what was the advantage of this um this this section of chromosome three uh, in uh the no so I read the alt- I read the article. It was an accelerated article in Nature, and they didn't specify any gene. They didn't highlight any variants. They don't really know the mechanism behind it yet. They just they, it's kind. It was just kind of an association study, and then they uh, discovered that the same um, uh, genetic material that actually spans almost fifty thousand base pairs was observed in ne- Neanderthal specimens discovered in the same uh, in the area of croatia and uh, and asia and uh, siberia it's this 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 50,000 base pairs on chromosome 3 the, was not present in denisova people so i think it's something that came from the neanderthals whoever has this uh, stretch of chromosome 3 inherited they are um they are aso- they, these are associated with the higher um, with a more severe complications of covid-19 yeah okay better better love story than twilight <laughs> yeah thank you i'll try hard to i try hard to make the love story happen yeah okay um and before yeah last headline before we go into our main stories and it's kind of like a nice kind of story as well that uh they're using canine scent detectors now in finland at the helsinki airport since the 22nd of September in a pilot study to see if they can speed up the detection of SARS-CoV-2 in the arrivals lounge. So it's really kind of sweet. So they're using dogs? Yeah. Uh, most of the 20 dogs being trained to detect the virus have been, stu- have been doing sniffing work before in identifying cancers, molds, and bed bugs. Kasi, an eight-year-old greyhound mix, learned to identify the scent of SARS-CoV-2 in just seven minutes. So, must be an insane nose on the dog. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how and what COVID just smells like. Is is this just one dog, or do they have like numerous dogs? Yeah, they have twenty dogs, <clears throat> and each dog learned how to smell COVID in roughly seven minutes. Or no, exactly I think this minutes. must be like a some kind of a, a very intelligent dog or something, or a really good nose on them. 
Um, yeah, and so far no other airport has attempted to use canine scent detection on such a large scale. So it's kind of interesting how uh, it's another maybe method that's maybe not as scientific, but it's still kind of useful in trying to screen people. So, what is their rate of accurate or yeah accurate detection or positive detection of people um, who are actually positive? It's not. It's still only preliminary test. Um, but it shows that dogs can smell the virus with almost a hundred percent certainty, and they can also identify people with the virus before symptoms appear. So it's still only uh, it's not like still only being in the preliminary stages. Um, yeah, like a hundred percent is always like that sounds a bit like suspect. Yeah, don't yeah. So for people listening and they're like, oh, I really want to meet these dogs. Don't try and just go on a flight to Finland to meet them, as you won't get anywhere <laughs> near the dogs. As people just take a test swipe from their skin, which is then placed in a cup and presented to the, to the dog, and those who test positive will be referred to health services. So you still need to get a confirmatory test. But this test is done on the airport. Yeah, well, the dog as, sniffing is done at the airport. As you enter the country or as you leave the no, country? No, enter the, enter the country. Enter. Yeah, okay. I think you still have to, in most countries going into Finland anyways, you still have to isolate. But I think this is just an extra maybe step that make you get tested. I think you have to nearly fly in with a test result anyways, so maybe it's not even really doing that much anyways. Do you know what? I kind of, I approach these kind of news when someone says that dogs can sniff COVID-19 with the same belief as I see like, oh, an octopus can predict a soccer game, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get it. It's yeah. super hard to believe yeah. that a dog can sniff out I just but like, I don't they understand do, how. It's not like um with the octopus, which has no like history or basis for knowing, whereas dogs have been used to sniff like drugs and uh and other kind of stuff. So it's not yeah, that but, crazy. But if you have like you can smell weed, like it stinks. <laughs> you can smell cocaine. But how do you smell if, what do you smell? Like, what do you do? You I'm, not, I'm not a dog. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. I'm not trying to annoy you, but like, what do you smell? Do you smell a virus? Do you smell something that virus releases? Do you smell like the chemicals that body produces due to response to the virus? I don't know. I don't know how you would even go about it. How you would know what it smells like. Um, yeah. And someone responded on this article as well. And they're like, but if one of the cardinal presenting symptoms of COVID-19 is a loss of smell, isn't there a risk of the dog suddenly becoming unable to detect COVID-19? But I think dogs aren't, cannot, are, well, so far it doesn't seem like they get infected with COVID-19. I thought that was a kind of a funny response. It was like, wow, they really thought about the dog getting, not being able to smell, but I don't think that happens. Yeah, and then the dog is afraid to lose the job, so it's just guessing. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's just like random people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that was that was my it, k- kind of quirky. That's a good one, man. Headline. That's a good one. I'd like to meet those dogs. Yeah, yeah. Could, yeah. If anyone maybe from I... Finland's listening, maybe you could link hook us up. Some pictures. Yeah. I don't think this the the SARS-CoV-2 strain um attacks dogs, so I think we 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 save on that. Yeah, point. I think it should be fine yeah okay um so that was our news headlines um so we will just go into our main headlines then now i think so um, do you want to kick it off or will yeah. i do it so at the moment 
conventional testing for uh, COVID-19 is basically done through your real-time PCR. Um, I think we've mentioned this previously on the podcast, whereas uh, you have to extract RNA from the swab. So you basically have your RNA, it needs to be transcribed into DNA, and then you basically need a primer. The primer will recognize the site on the viral DNA, and then you basically amplify up, and then you generate a signal, which gives you the positive results. That's basically how it works. But a big problem now is that they want to, like, when we, if we want to get out of this pandemic, I think the huge thing that we need to do is testing, testing, testing. I think that's <clears throat> been, like, established hugely, that uh, we need to test people who have it, test people who don't seem to have symptoms, and being able to get an accurate result from either, if you have symptoms, don't have system, symptoms, and then isolate people that are positive. Um, that's how we really have to get, that's how we get the numbers down. That's the that's the focus on how we get out of this, mm-hmm. um, but the problem with like normal now a real time PCR it's it's slow and it can be uh, take your time to get results it can take like at least twenty four hours which can still be low it's still very fast but twenty four to forty hours but you would love to just get it in the same day and then as well like if you can do this in within like a few hours or an hour or two you can get crowds back into pitches you can get pubs open you can do all this kind of stuff um so that's why you want to get these rapid new tests developed so that we can try and get back society to normal and that we don't have to just get your swab done and then you have to isolate and you have to wait for like how long it can be before you know if you're positive or negative um so the big problem at the moment in trying to determine accuracy and the precision of new diagnostic tests um is that there's no real clear-cut gold standard for diagnosis of COVID-19. Like, I've already mentioned the real-time PCR, but it's still not really the ideal gold standard because a systematic review of the accuracy of this testing has reported a false negative rate between 2% and 29%. So you can get the sensitivity as low as 71%. So sensitivity, again, is if, if you were positive, that you will get a positive result. So basically false negatives and this is the big problem with uh real-time pcr is that your patients that are positive are coming up negative it's negative you've repeated and then if it comes up negative then that's the your gold standard you need to do a a duplicate test in a way but it's basically they reckon that it's this is underestimating the real true rate of false negatives because that's what you that's the gold standard duplicate testing of a real-time pcr so it's kind of like you're, you're trying to compare uh, a new test to this, uh, this gold standard that isn't ideally a great indicator of false negatives. Uh, yeah, so there's a lot of things that can impact the accuracy, basically the side and the quality of the sampling. Um, and yeah, there was one study that looked at the sensitivity and it was 93% for bronchoalveolar lavage. 72% mm-hmm. for sputum, 63% for nasal swab, and 32% for throat swab. So it's still, like, what they do routine, like nasal and throat swab, it's still, it's still not ideal. And again, yeah, it depends on the stage of the disease and the degree of viral multi- multiplication or clearance. And this is the main thing to take away. Like, positive tests can be useful in ruling in COVID-19, but a negative swab cannot be considered definite for ruling out. So it's right. good. This, the specificity is great, but the sensitivity is the issue really with these new tests. 
Okay. So this is something we kind of like as medical scientists, I suppose we were always trying to figure out like uh, a good indication of both that if they're, and I think in this case, you definitely want to detect if someone's positive. Like, I don't think uh, giving false positives isn't, it's not ideal, but it's not terrible either because it's like they'd still have to isolate. And is that what you think? Mm, I agree with you so far. That's why I'm staying quiet. I have nothing, uh, nothing, <laughs> yeah, yeah. nothing, uh, nothing to say that would add to the conversation for now. Okay. So, um, so what are these new tests that mm-hmm. are being trying to be developed? Mm-hmm. So the two rapid tests I'm just going to talk about in this my main story is antigen detection assays and this other assay that's kind of very new that's kind of been used that hasn't uh, a quicker turn during time and it's called. Uh, lamp PCR testing uh, and I thought it was actually a really interesting new technique that's been uh, implemented that's actually reducing turnaround times as well. So these are two tests that suppose that are going to be added to the real-time PCR or going to replace the real-time PCR? No, Do you know no how they it, can, it won't be able to replace it like because they, okay. it's still there's it's still considered the gold standard real-time PCR but okay. uh, they're going to be kind of useful in point of care settings uh or uh, maybe in other settings where they can just get a quicker result so one of them is one of them is sero- serological based because of you mentioned antigen and the other one is uh, molecular because of pcr yeah yeah okay um so uh so the antigen tex- detection assays yeah they they have rapid turnaround times the point point of clear implementation and that below cost um, but the problem is they have even they have designed these for influenza detection, so regular flu, and they've mm-hmm. shown substantially lower analytical and clinical sensitivity compared with uh, your PCR testing. And this is the problem that it it's going to ha- they test with such performance characteristics will only really identify those with high viral burden and miss the ones that maybe have lower ones. Um, yeah, so the one of the ones I'm going to talk about that's been I seen uh, Trump had talked about this at his press conference during the week. It's this the Abbott Binax now. So this is the new test that Trump was talking about, and he was it was being demonstrated. And I just wanted to kind of cover it because uh, the way they talked about it seemed like it was too 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 good to be true. So again, I had to be a bit skeptical. <laughs> so. What it is, is it's a lateral flow immune acid. So it's like a pregnancy test. Like you put the, you put your sample on and it'll go up the, up the strip. And basically it has these highly sensitive antibodies that will detect the protein. And then you get your, your line, if you, your two lines, if you have the infection mm-hmm. or not. Um, basically it's looking, it's only useful if for the first seven days after onset of symptoms. Um, and it's yeah, it's usually during the acute phase of infection, uh, and positive results indicate the presence of the antigen. But you again need to confirm with clinical details. And again, a negative test doesn't rule out the infection. So, so they can I can I just ask you a question? Yeah. So they test for the presence of viral antigen rather mm. than uh, antibody. Yeah, yeah. This is an antigen. So okay. Um, the the problem is with the antibody because t- when I heard him say this as well, I was like, "Oh, it had to be antibody testing," but it's not. This is actually antigen, and the problem is again with doing antibody testing, it's not active infection, so it's it's only and they're still not really sure what 
what the implications for serological testing can show so it's it's still very limited the info you can get whereas what when you want to do is get you want to see active infection mm-hmm. uh, and this is what this test can try and help with is it a spike protein that they detect in do you know it's a nucleocapsid protein nucleocapsid protein mm-hmm. okay one of the structural proteins okay so what instead of um with the current testing with the swab you know i've talked about this last episode and previously where you have to jam it up your to your <laughs> brain basically and basically uh get you right way down your throat you just have to like insert it up your nose like give it a like it's like if you had a uh a q-tip and you just like it's just a little regular it's gross your nose yeah really like your man demonstrated i was like jesus this looks like he's barely going in there <laughs> <laughs> yeah get deeper uh, <laughs> so um yeah you you rotate it five times in both of your nostrils and then yeah you put it into this uh strip you, t- mm-hmm. you twist it with the it has like a diluent you put that five time drops into it you twist your swab into it and then you leave it 15 minutes and it should be ready uh and the, this isn't the only one that looks at antigen tests there is like other companies the it's like Lumina, DX, Bex and Dixon. Um, but the Abbott's test has advantage over the others because these are automated antigen assays, whereas the Abbott one is just like, it's like a pregnancy test. You just do it and it's, the result is there. You don't need an instrument or anything. Um, and as well as that, uh, it's only going to cost $5 for this test. This is very cheap. Okay. Yeah, that's really good. And the Abbott, it's going to start selling it from... It said it's going to try and make up to 50 million available from the beginning of October in the US now, like not in Europe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but you still need to perform this in a place like a, with good lab practice. So you can't just, that's the problem. It's like you can't really do this in schools or maybe nursing homes. You need somewhere that they actually can accurately, someone who can accurately do it. Mm-hmm. And they're also intending to launch this uh, optional app which is linked to the test and allows their patient to res- display the result as a sort of a passport. And I think people were talking about this at the beginning with the antibody testing, they could like get a passport for their antibody. So this is kind of another kind of like, oh, this is a good idea. No. Why do you say Be- it's not a good idea? Because I'm against anything that will track me even more than I am right now. <laughs> and now but it's government- not really, tra- it's not really tracking. It's like a passport in a way. Yeah, but I and who am I going to have to show to this? Everybody? Well, it's and like do I have in, to get tested every two weeks to renew my passport. Yeah, this is the thing. Like, um, it's gonna like, I suppose it's if you're like you had symptoms and you, that way you could just if you got tested you can you can have uh, or you were in close contact with someone you could get the test and then you have it on your phone and you can show it to people or if you go into a concert or whatever. Um, but they're saying, yeah, it's going to expire after a, perspe- a period specified by organizations that accept that app. So, yeah, this is kind of an interesting thing because, like, you're definitely going to have to get repeat testing if this expires, uh, if, if you want to use it. I think this is what they're, this is their aim now. This is how they get it. You're going to have to keep getting repeat testing, get the result on your phone, then you can use it. But so $5 initially can seem cheap, but then you're gonna to have to get repeat testing and if this comes a thing where you have to like show this to everyone or places you go it's great it's a great money maker for them um so yeah it's just it's just kind of 
interesting. Uh, look, if you if you go out, let's say you go out every night, Monday to Sunday. So ideally, you should get tested every every time you 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 participate in the big event, right? Yeah. So let's say you do it for seven days a week. Uh, just like it's unrealistic, but let's say. So then you have to get tested seven times a week. So for five dollars, that's thirty five dollars. Uh, thirty five dollars per week. There's fifty two uh, weeks in the mo- in the year. So that's coming up around two extra two thousand uh, dollars annually just to be able to uh, to enjoy your to enjoy your life. <laughs> I still don't think they would make it. I don't think you would need to do it every day. But like I'd say weekly, maybe. What What do you mean? If I go to the concert on Friday and I have a great time, and then on Saturday I want to go for like a nice meal with my friends, I can't just go to the restaurant the yeah. next day without getting tested. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, just so get it's just tested like... and sit your ass at home until the whole <laughs> thing is over. Like, stop trying, tr- stop trying to look for like loopholes. So how can you go and get drunk? Like, just. Stay at home, read a book, call your mom. I don't know, just stop looking for loopholes. But like, it, this is, people will use it though, don't you agree? Because they're like, I'll just do it just so I can. Yeah, so I can but like, I don't know. Definitely not everyday regular Joe like me and you. I'm actually thriving at home. <laughs> keep going. What's the, but anyway, so um, yeah. yeah, the the bit that I wanted, the bit that I was interested in, it was like, okay, what was the, how did they verify this? Because like we both worked in labs, we both know that the the when you're in, implementing a new test, you need to verify it, and they usually be like, "Oh, it's a hundred percent accurate, or it's super sensitive, or detection limit, and blah blah blah." And and it's usually not really realistic. So what um, they said was that they used a total of seven investigational sites through the U.S and was performed with operators with no lab experience. I found that was funny that they specified that. Just wanted to show how easy it was mm. to be used. <laughs> and yeah, uh, yeah, who, they said these were very representative of the intended users. So to be enrolled in the study, they had, they had to be participating at study centers with suspected COVID-19. Patients who presented within seven days of onset were included in initial primary analysis and there was only seven asymptomatic patients enrolled. So they didn't look at radiated asymptomatic patients. Of these seven <laughs> asymptomatic patients, only two patients were positive for SARS-CoV-2. So th- again, they really were only looking at patients with symptoms within mm-hmm. seven days. That was the whole issue. And again, they used two nasal swabs were collected and they used the real-time PCR assay as a comparator. So can I, I, I'll ask you, because I like to ask you with numbers. What was the sample size you think would be acceptable for trying to verify this? Would you want, like, estimate? how many people I would want it to be tested? To, yeah, to this verify to be... this assay. Okay. A thousand people. A thousand people, okay. Uh, so they. <laughs> they established... Did you say 16? <laughs> no, no, no. They established it with 102 nasal swabs. From, collected from individual symptomatic patients so one tenth of what you said <laughs> were they all white and male i don't know they didn't actually break it down by race they only did it by age okay um but it's kind of they said 102 nasal swabs and, and i was remembered that they said two nasal swab per patient so i'm just like i think it might be even half of that that were patients so that's 50 50- <laughs> People. I don't know. I don't know for sure. It doesn't say that, but it just said 102 nasal swabs were collected, and I, I was said two nasal swabs per collected per patient. So it must. 
I just think it must be half would be patience. Um, yeah, I was so, thinking the same. <laughs> yeah, so it was really low. Um, so the positive agreement was 34 out of 35. So sensitivity was 97.1%, while negative agreement was 66 out of 67. So a specificity of 98.5%. Um, so it was impressive. But again, the numbers are just so low. It's like it doesn't really give a good indication in general um and they generally only looked at those from between 20 and 59 or greater than 60 years they didn't look anyone less than 20 mm. or 21 sorry um and yet it appeared the greater distance from symptom onset the less likely it would match with the real-time pcr it was interesting they stratified the positive antigen card with the ct counts from the real-time PCR mm-hmm. to better understand the correlation. And it showed that if you had a higher CT count, it was less likely to match. And if it was a CT count of less than 33, it would be more likely to uh, to match. So I thought that was kind of interesting because generally that w- I would think if you have a greater CT count, that's a higher viral load and you would have a better chance of detecting it. But that was kind of the opposite what they found here. So... I suppose vi- CT count doesn't always... CT count, is, again, is that that's the threshold of what causes yeah. a positive in your real-time PCR, just so that people would know. And they also wanted to see in a limited cohort of patients who presented after seven days of symptoms. Uh, and this was only in 28 patients, so it was, again, really <laughs> low. Um, and the positive agreement in the study was 75%, and the negative agreement was 92%. So I think they're decided like we're not going to test this in, uh, in patients with after seven days of onset of symptoms. So yeah, it's just that was that was basically that that whole kind of that's what I wanted to say about the that test. Um, it's interesting because it's kind of like uh, as a scientist, you're kind of like we want the highest accuracy, we want the highest precision. We don't want we don't want to if it doesn't match up, we're not going to use it. But in this mm. situation where I think it'd be very useful and uh, like as I had mentioned in developing countries like Africa where they have not many other op- other um test methods that they can use but also I suppose it's it's kind of like if it, this test even if it's not as accurate as the real time PCR and it, again it, the real time PCR still has its disadvantages um if it more likely would help the person self isolate because they would just get the test really quickly would it be worth implementing then uh, not having it. Well, the, you shouldn't just rely on one test. That's that's for sure. So why that's what I think that is good to have this test uh, getting mm. implemented. I think it's a good idea. I think you mentioned that it could be used in the remote areas that don't have a, a good access to uh, to better testing mechanisms. But in the same time don't think people should look at this as the test it's you know you, you don't don't structure your life around only this particular test because mm. you highlighted highlighted your you highlighted its shortcomings compared to the to the real time pcr so i think it's a it's a good thing to have uh even it would be even greater if people could do it just by themselves just like like you do the pregnancy test yeah. Obviously, that's that's not the case. You still need like a, a trained prof- professionals, but it's a good indication. It's a, could be could be like a screening test, perhaps. Yeah. Before Maybe. before you eliminate for a more, um, because 
the more precise the test or the, the more technically advanced, probably the more, the more expensive it is. So having a screen test that test that costs you five euro and maybe just, you, you know, Quickly even if it them. has, even if it's gonna have like the high rate of picking up uh, people positive, even though they're negative. Yeah, like for me, I think <clears throat> I don't really care about the specificity. If, it, if it's overcalling positives, I think that's not a big problem. It's yeah. more that if you're coming up negative when you have it, because then you're going around and you can spread it still. So yeah. if, the, if the sensitivity is not good, I think it's useless because this person would get the negative and they're like, oh, I came up negative. I don't need to get tested. And then they'd be like, well, I still think you need to get a real time PCR. And they're like, no, I don't want to get one. So uh, that's just the issue. Like they, that's what you need to make sure if you can yeah. definitely tell that you're a positive when you have it. I think that's good thing um but yeah that's that's just the only problem i'd be worried about i know having the test there is great but if it's not detecting it when you have it then it's not useful and it's actually more dangerous i think so yeah that's <laughs> what i wanted to uh say about that so that for the other alternative so this isn't uh this is still based on molecular testing and it's it's not as quick as antigen testing but it's still uh quicker than the real-time pcr Mm-hmm. so what have you ever heard of lamp-based testing no i was trying to figure out the acronym in my head but i, I don't think i come up with anything uh, anything close yeah um so it's loop mediated isothermal amplification i don't know how they came up with a lamp with that they were just like hmm, what can we because <laughs> it's <an> lmia <laughs> but um it's a single tube technique for the amplification of dna and it provides a low-cost alternative to real-time PCR. It involves the design of assay primers and the use of a strand-displacing polymerase to allow rapid amplification at a constant temperature without the need for thermal cycling, which is usually required for PCR, which are denaturation, annealing, and extension. Pause, pause, pause. Can you tell me again the, the delay? Yeah, can you tell me this experiment again? How does it work? It basically, so you have different, pri- you, so you have a number of primers for the site mm-hmm. and it's, it's called as a strand displacing polymerase. So it's not um, your normal polymerase, which needs the, the d- different temperatures. This only right. needs one constant temperature and you don't need to do your thermal cycling. So how do you, so do you use single strand? How do they, how is the DNA, uh, sep- how the strands are separated? Okay, so basically what happens is it's a color, colorimetric assay in a way. So you mm-hmm. have to extract your RNA again. That's still the tedious part because you still have to do your RNA extraction which takes a longer time. If they can come up with a method for that to extract it quicker, that'd be great for all tests combined. Anyway, so it uses three different primer sets. So one mm-hmm. targets the SARS-CoVid N gene. One mm-hmm. targets the server's COVID-2 envelope gene and one targeting mm-hmm. this human RNAP, RNASP. So the RNASP is just a control. Like it's basically you want to make sure that this has to be positive for your test to work. So the other two okay. are just more specific for the size mm-hmm. COVID-2. So each primer set is comprised of six individual primers targeting specific region of this viral RNA, mm-hmm. which yeah are amplified up during isothermal incubation and yeah, using a strand displacing polymerase. So how this works is that the D, the DNTPs that get incorporated into the, the, the amplifying strand, 
mm-hmm. and what it does is during amplification it causes a pH change in the reaction which is visibly detected with pH sensitive dyes and then the reaction color chain initiated by amplification is measured spectrophotometrically over a period of 70 minutes using a microplate reader and then reaction displaying a color shift indicate that that target sequence is present that's great wow that's yeah. so cool it's really interesting how they came up with this yeah. w- another way and then okay do, is this like a brand new type of a pcr or have they it's, used it before it's been For it some- had been used before like i think they like the i've seen um there's actually a place that they do this private testing in ireland they do with this method because you can get a a rapid test within an hour or two wow um and you have to pay more for it but it's super useful um the problem is is that at the moment the yeah it's still a very new technology and cases of covid detected by this uh method it's not wasn't being entered into the national tracing system because the hrc wanted it to be still confirmed by real-time pcr so again it was slowing it up but um they reckon it's still as accurate so yeah a paper i actually looked at looking at the real-time this real-time lamp assay on they looked at surplus rna samples isolated this was from 768 like this is the numbers you should be using abbott if you're listening <laughs> um they collected yeah 760 pharyngeal swab specimens collected from individuals being tested for covid19 and they looked at it again compared it with um real-time pcr and they found that it the assay reliably detected sars cov 2 rna with a sensitivity of 97.5% and a specificity of 99.7%. So it seems to be still very accurate and correlates a lot with the real-time PCR and it actually is a lot quicker. Wow. So it's um it's amazing in a way like how innovative people can use different technologies to like see if they can make things quicker and make money off it I suppose. Okay. <coughs> so in late, so in um so for 100 people this test for 100 positive people, this test would only mark one positive person as negative, and for 100 negative person, this test will mark two as positive. Is that correct? Uh, t- yeah, roughly two or three. Yeah, yeah, two or three. Yeah. Okay, what? Well, so, it's so um, amazing how little I know. It's cr- like this technology is crazy. Interesting. Yeah, I only seen this during the week, and I seen it. It was in a, an article. I, I was like, I heard, I seen lamp, and I was like, I've never heard of that. And I looked it up, and I seen it's been used, and it's FDA approved as well. This, uh, it was only recently, I think, during September that this technology was approved by the FDA to be used, uh, into diagnosing COVID. Yeah, so it, they say, like, they, I, it, one of the things that it says, like, typically time to positive result is 15 to 25 minutes from the start of the reaction. But that's, like, you still need to go the 70 minutes. And as well, you need to do the RNA extraction. So, like, them two, like, the extraction is still a bit, like, time-consuming. If they could narrow that down, then it would help a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's well, just, it's, it's, it can be used in a small portable analyzer, again, because you don't need a proper um like a thermocycler so uh yeah i just thought it was a it's a really interesting new technology that could be used and uh maybe that could be another technology more closer to the site that person could just get a test everyone could get tested and have the results within an hour or two Mm. so i think that's it's really cool 
Do you know anything about the costs of this uh, experiment? Of this no, test? I don't have any costs. I just knew what that they were charging. Um, it's probably not five dollars. No, it definitely isn't. Yeah, so it offers this company that was doing the testing in Dublin. It provides uh, same day testing at a cost of one hundred and forty nine euro per test, and the express tests that provide results within a few hours cost two hundred per test. And if you want to just get a PCR test, it will cost one hundred and seventy nine per test. So like it was still the same day, which is pretty impressive. Yeah. And they were saying the majority were opting for the express test because yeah, if you had that option of getting it within a few hours uh for 50 or more you nearly would you do it yeah so I'm, um it's just still like they, i think the health services uh need to just work together like and just be like no you have to do it my way so that's just something that i hope people take think about way more in favor of the second lamp test that you described than mm. the first one and uh, it I seems suppose they're like... kind of different they're for different kind of different kind of maybe populations are in different areas so um but yeah yeah if i i'm going to keep an eye on this the, the antigen card like because i want to see i haven't there's been nothing nothing published about a third party like doing testing on this to see how accurate it is so i really it's still super new so i couldn't really get any more info on like any other private places or any public any other papers that were published to see how accurate it was it was just what the fda had reported on their website so that's that's really good. I th- well, just the way they come up with it, I'm happy that this test like is like successful and they tested in the reasonable number of people and stuff like that. But I'm like I'm super uh, enthusiastic and interested about the technology itself. Yeah, like, yeah. Now, now that I think of it, for me, this is more exciting than the fact that it's a really good test to 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 test COVID. Like I don't. This is like for me. This is the second thing right now. Yeah. It's like my brain is all about how cool is the technology that they employed. So and just to use it, yeah, for research. Uh. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm. That's where my mind is going now. It's like that's super. That's dope, man. This is like why we doing this. You come up with something brilliant. Yeah. You found yeah. something brilliant. That's it. Yeah, I'm. I think people would appreciate that because this is like super new. Mm. Just the technology with, with, with the way they used it and the five dollar test. Yeah, um, probably. <laughs> probably use more than 50 people and two nostrils two no two two nose holes yeah yeah okay so that's the end of my um my story yeah so that was a uh, pretty cool yeah yeah so what do you have to tell us then about tom for your okay so story? i i found this paper i found this paper about the diabetes and i thought it's gonna be like super interesting paper from first page till the last page and uh at some it was not there, there was a one it was one aspect of this paper that i found really interesting and the rest of it is just a large uh, proteomic studies when they listed fifty thousand different proteins and i think everybody would fall asleep if i start listing fifty thousand different <laughs> proteins so yes. so i'm just gonna i'm just gonna focus on the bit that was interesting for me in this paper which is developing a disease on a dish model which is um which is something called we're trying to do this within the field of uh, ophthalmology as well where we're trying to develop um amd on the dish which um 
which is the uh, H uh, macular degeneration. Yeah, and just to kind of, uh, and I found in the meantime, I found another uh, interesting article which uh, uh, associates loneliness with type 2 diabetes. And it was a, it was a large study involving uh, 4,000 people over the span of uh, 12 years. So I think it was something interesting. So I'm just going to dive in straight into the disease on the dish as a, f as a first thing, but just to kind of uh, give her to people a rough estimation of like how huge diabetes is and how much it affects us. So, and that's the WHO facts. So by in 2014, the number of people with diabetes was uh, 422 millions. That's yeah. a lot. It's uh, one of the main causes of death. And um, there is not currently, there is no uh, a, a possible cure, uh, but you know, a healthy diet, regular physical activities and normal, uh, normal body weight and avoiding tobacco smoking, it could, um, can prevent the onset of type two diabetes. And diabetes is also linked with like blindness, kidney failure, heart attacks. So like really complicated thing. It's a multifactorial uh, chronic disease. So it's a, the genetic, uh, genetic part of it and the environmental part of it. And I'm going to focus on the type 2 diabetes, which is um, uh, beta cells secretion um, and the insulin resistance. And then the other one is a type 1 diabetes, which is like onset in the very young people when the B cells get destroyed due to autoimmune actions of the immune system. So I think that's, um, that's enough to get into about the diabetes. I don't think there's any point in getting me into how insulin works and how the whole pathways work. I don't think this is really important for now. So what was the, what was the research question this paper was trying to answer? It was to, um, to understand the precise nature uh, underlying the mechanism of the diabetes and whether it results from a cell autonomous signaling uh, defects or is it some systemic changes? So they want to they want to find out whether it's like, as I said, something that is within the cell itself, the signaling due to different genetic mutations or epigenetic uh, variants, mutations, or is it more due to like hormones, cytokines, maybe some sort of inflammation going on that can kind of mediate and start the, and start the diabetes. So what they did is they take a, a muscle biopsies from seven healthy individuals and um, seven uh, people with the diabetes, and they redifferentiated the muscle biopsy into induced pluripotent stem cells and uh, as you know the stem cells then have unlimited potential to develop either either way you, you wish so then from that point they read they differentiated them back into induced myoblasts so you had induced myoblasts from the control zone and from the uh, from the diabetes and what uh, are myoblasts people. again that's again uh, muscle cells because they wanted okay. to they wanted to um, to test this uh, in the muscle in the muscle cells because muscle cells are one of the first cells being affected by diabetes. So the first step in this um, in this scenario was to actually see if the the diabetic uh, induced myoblast behave the same way as the cell cultures uh, taken from people uh, biopsies. So yeah. they, they exposed them to insulin and they got readouts and everything was kind of checking out. They saw uh, decreased responses to insulin. They saw that the a glucose transporter was not really uh, activating, even, even though there was a glucose and insulin present in the, in the culture. So all of these things were checking out. But what, so um, was it the patients, the healthy patients um, and the diabetes, like when they, repro so they reprogrammed them, did they yeah. still like act the same? 
Yeah, so no, so the di- so the 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 reprogrammed induced mayo blasts from the control population they behaved as they as the cell supposed to in the presence of the glucose and yeah. the insulin. So it was a normal uptake, normal process of glucose, and then and the the signaling was all the same with that, uh, inside the inside the cells. Uh, and what they saw in that mayo mayo blast from the diabetic patients. They saw the same kind of a uh, missignaling and misbehavior uh, that is that was observed in the normal biopsies uh, done. So the reprogramming on this, on this didn't change it. Uh, no, so basically they kind of achieved what they wanted to see because they wanted they wanted to see the the same responses uh, in the reprogrammed cells as they see in the normal biopsies, because mm-hmm. if. Uh, so that the two are the same. So that was the kind of the base level. Before get jumping into the results, the uh, one advantage of this approach is to reveal the insights into these more complex disorders like diabetes. Is to that that you eliminate these factors like I, I mentioned, uh, inflammation, uh, different hormone release, different mm-hmm. cytokines. So you you minimize this. And you just are focused on studying the cell, cell signaling itself in the presence of insulin and glucose. So you eliminate all of these background messages that can be coming in. And uh, so that was th- that, that's how they wanted to study whether there is some internal pathways that uh, cause the diabetes on its own or whether it's all due to the signals coming in from different parts. So what they have discovered is that the def- defects in the skeletal muscles, insulin action, and the mitochondrial oxidation persist in in vitro. So there is a, there is some there is some changes that happen in the cell uh, without presence of the hormones or other metabolites. So there is something intrinsic happening in the cell in these diabetic patients, and that can and that can lead to developing diabetes. Um, Does that caused by genetic reasons? Yeah, I was just I was just about to say that that uh, they they believe that this has to be these patients have some genetic or maybe uh, epigenetic re, uh, epigenetic signatures that even though the cells were re reprogrammed and then differentiated into the this muscle cells, this epigenetic or genetic signature was still there, and that caused like the chaos in the signaling pathways they were detecting. And the funny thing was that not only the signaling pathways within the insulin uh, pathway were affected, but they noticed different, different ob- obscured or aberrant signaling in the, in, the splice, in the splicing and in vesicle trafficking. So, there's, so they see in this diabetes patient, there's like fault signaling, not only in the insulin pathway that you would think because it's a diabetes, it also like goes into like really not directly related to insulin pathway uh, proteins so it's yeah. like the whole gamma range being affected and now they kind of know that that uh, there's something genetic aspect to this type 2 diabetes that uh, that is there whether it is the uh, whether it is like an epigenetic signature or something genetic isn't it it's to like to me it seems like well what you're from what you're saying is like because usually it's like people who are on really high glucose d- diets anyways and it obviously this kind of this kind of diet or whatever is triggering this expression of this this gene or something maybe it's like an inflammatory gene like in the mitochondria or whatever and then this is causing the the signaling cascade problems further down the line is that fair to say yeah well they would imagine that there is true that there is like uh 
the diet environmental the smoking, aspect, yeah sorry. the environmental aspect they do influence but the, i think that the idea was if you get these biopsies and you reprogram them into induced pluripotent stem cells you actually you kind of erase these uh, uh, these signatures that were put upon the genetic code due to the environment when you reprogram them into stem into induced pluripotent stem cells so then you basically starting with like a with like a clean slate and mm. you then differentiate them back into the muscle cells and yet there is still something there some they, they reckon it's some sort of genetic or epigenetic signature that still causes the cells to 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 misbehave and to to have some aberrant signaling going on and it's not like a, every protein in the signaling pathway is affected they notice that like some some chain some chain in the signaling is non-affected and then it's affected and then it's not affected again because you know the way proteins propagate the signal it's sent from yeah. protein to protein to protein some of them behave normally some of them misbehave so they, they it really showed that there is something innate to the cells of the diabetic patients that that per- contributes to the development of diabetes that it's that they might have some um Predispos- genetic or epigenetic predisposition and of course the the bad diet and other the environmental things they do contribute to to further developing of this of this condition but nevertheless they have a genetic epigenetic predisposition and mm-hmm. that was and that was studied on this uh, disease on the on the dish approach which there i was thought no, was they so they removed the environmental aspect to just see if it was purely genetic yeah and they reckon it was okay. yeah it's just interesting, all, like, because I feel like you're just been hardwired to say it has to be environmental in type 2, so it's just kind of interesting. Yeah, well, I don't know. Well, it doesn't have... Mm, I don't think it ge- for it to be genetically or epigenetically present, it doesn't have to... It didn't have to start with having, like, an evolutionary advantage. It, you know, like, the cancer is... There. Yeah, it's, it could be just, like, a pathology, you know? Could be just a on itself a pathology, so that was interesting how they how they use the the patient cells the the whole process of differentiation and the use of stem cells and they um and they first of all that they showed that they differentiated induced myoblasts they do behave uh, as a bi- as the myoblast taken from the biopsy so that was a uh, you know they kind of it's really hard it sounds easy but it's really hard to get no. your cells to do what you want and to behave the way you want it you know so I thought. It was it was a pretty cool thing, and um, now moving on to the to the loneliness bit uh, and type two diabetes. So, uh, would you ever thought that being alone is uh, could be a cause of developing uh, a diabetes? And if you don't, if you don't, what do you think? Would you would you would you see a link between being alone and developing diabetes? Um, is it a risk factor? Is that what they say? It is a risk factor living alone. Um, well, yeah. Well, they call it association. That there is an association yeah. between. They do mention that it could be. It could be a, a loneliness is so very often associated with like a smoking behavior and overeating mm. and the couch life, which is as we know these these are the environmental factors that trigger the uh, that trigger yeah. the development of the of the diabetes. Um, for me, I think, uh, yeah. Generally, when you're feeling lonely, it's like you're you're generally uh i think you're you're, usually you're not active as much you don't get to see friends you might see your parents and you're not active like 
doing sports or something because I think yeah then you wouldn't feel as lonely as much so generally I think you feel like you're at home most of the time and yeah then when you're at home you're obviously not doing exercise and then you're eating it's very hard to do exercises at home but like it's I hope that this couldn't be a mix between loneliness and depression because it can be kind of learn the the line can be a bit blurred a bit yeah yeah it was very good (laughs) that was very good that you said it right now so um so this is the first study that associated loneliness with the type 2 diabetes however there were some other studies that have linked living alone and self-isolation as a risk factor to develop diabetes Mm. but this one is the first to associate loneliness and in this study they define loneliness as a quality of social interaction rather than quantity so it's uh in you know how how good are your interactions rather than how much of the interactions you have because you know sometimes you could be surrounded by a thousand people and feel still feel lonely yeah yeah so this study is started uh, it's done in waves started in 2004 and the final wave was done in 2018 so it's really long spread of time so they um they included the participants from 2006, 2007, and they were investigating them till 2016, 2018. And uh, participants included were the inclusion of participants was based on of self analysis. So it was like a questionnaire uh, where you have to answer. And also they were like tested for uh, ground, whether they were diabetic, diabetic at the start of the study, whether they had a high sugar. So all of these things were done. So th- initially they start with the 8,000 participants, but it narrowed down to 4,112. So you, so you exclude a lot of them. And the depression, as you said, was, a, was considered a secondary predictor variable. So you had like a loneliness on your own. And then on your, on your own, you have uh, depression as well. So these two were not mixed because that could be, they could negatively uh, affect each other. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. You, it basically they were like stratified, like. Yeah. So I think within the group of the 4,000 people, all of them started as non-diabetic people and uh, they were assessed on the loneliness. Uh, so it was like, as, as I said, questionnaire type, types of questions like, do you feel lonely? How often do you call your f- uh, family members? How often do you see your family members? But anyway, from the pool of 4,000 people, 6%, 6.42% developed type 2 diabetes. And what they saw is those who developed diabetes were significantly lonelier on average than those who did not develop diabetes. Uh, and these all have very, uh, very small p-values. So everything, this data showed that everything is like statistically significant. But did, uh, they, did they have, can I ask, did they have a control group then? No, there was just a big cohort of people and they just, and they stratified them based on the... Um, if they're lonely or not. Yeah, and whether they smoke, whether they female or male, uh, age group, uh, social social background. Um, so so they did. So they basically so they did like they wanted to. So they looked at a load of different aspects. They looked at loneliness, yeah. smoking, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then finances. They at, they co- well, so yeah. they would compare the patients that were like lonely and then the patients that weren't yeah. lonely. So that yeah. oh, okay. So they are kind of a control. It wasn't yeah, controlled so for. It wasn't just that they were recruited lonely patients. No, no, <laughs> no, no. Like, they were, would... No, like based on this questionnaire, they assessed which people feel lonely at the start of the uh, exper- of the of this survey, which didn't feel lonely, and then throughout the whatever how many years it was, uh, they still kind of readjust these assessments and they kept the track on them. Um. Uh, oh yeah, and they uh, they were more the the diabetic patients were more likely to be a male 
of non-white ethnicity. So we are lucky, we can be lonely. And they were also of, they were less well off financially. But long, so that was, that, was, uh, that was shown that the diabetes were associated with, uh, were highly associated with loneliness. But then loneliness on its own uh, was, uh, was, was also linked to have a higher level of uh, glycated hemoglobin, you know, the HbA1c hemoglobin. Mm-hmm. Um, loneliness was also significantly positively associated with uh, depressive symptoms. Lonelier participants were more likely to be female, but people oh. who developed diabetes were, were lonely male. So oh. that's, uh, yeah, that's, that was kind of, uh, that was weird. Um, they also coronary, uh, coronary diseases and heart diseases were also more prevalent within the lonelier participants versus these ones who are not that lonely. So a one point increase in the average loneliness score was associated with a 41% increase in the hazard of type two diabetes onset. So like mm-hmm. these, the, yeah, so it sounds very dramatic. Like, you know, if you just even become barely more lonely, there's almost, there's a huge jump in the risk of becoming diabetic. So uh, they concluded a sensitivity anal- analysis, excluding participants who reported type two diabetes diagnosis within 24 months of the baseline assessment. So they did get rid of the people who were diabetic at the start. Loneliness remained a significant predictor of incident diabetes, independent of uh, depressive symptoms, living alone, and social isolation. So even if you, even if you like me, who lives alone, like does not necessarily means that I am lonely. So they really pay emphasis on it, like on the quality that it's the quality yeah. of your interactions that can lead to diabetes. And I think it's really this this paper came out in the right time. Now that in the Netherlands, we're in the second lockdown phase due to the second wave of coronavirus. And, you know, like people should seek out interactions, but not, not trying to go, not trying to go to every coffee morning with like thousand people, just, you know, talk to your family, talk to your friends, start a podcast like me and Evan. I never feel lonely now. Evan is always like bothering me with some stuff about (laughs) podcasts. So, you know, this is how we, yeah, just just stay healthy because it's the mental health apparently now it's that you can develop a diabetes because who knows maybe this lockdown's gonna stay for like six eight twelve months so you don't wanna God. you don't wanna leave the lockdown and have diabetes because you just don't want that but can i ask why did they know did they say why they think it happened why is the why do you more likely develop it is it psycho- is it really psychological is it is there cofactors like because you're so lonely you eat more mm-hmm. or yeah so it's not this is this is a tough one because this is a, not a study that we are used to see when do you have like experiments that that test and give the hypothesis and you can you can kind of try to deduce a pathways or mechanism this is this is a simply uh, association study on the huge cohort of people mm. uh from the they bear base their study coming from the knowledge that uh, a loneliness has already been linked to the higher risk of coronary disease or heart disease and the mm. diabetes type 2 is also linked to to heart diseases and as i said there were before there were some studies showing a link between self-isolation uh, as a risk factor to develop a diabetes so they just look at it from that perspective but whether whether it's i think here they show that loneliness on its own can predispose you or has been is linked to higher chances of developing diabetes so maybe you know maybe there's something changes in the uh, in your brain the way 
different hormones are released maybe yeah. maybe loneliness can be somehow linked to the inflammation and i think inflammation is one of the risk factor of developing uh, mm -hmm. diabetes like a like a prolonged chronic inflammation if we would have a psycholo psychologist psychologist yeah like experimental psychologist or a research psychologist who be able to kind of link why depression is um why loneliness is is what is the mechanism behind it because now we have it'd the be data. interesting as a follow-up story like they could like recruit some of these uh, like patients that would be feel like they're lonely and then you could be like okay one group you can just like eat whatever you want and just you know where the others would be like okay you can only eat certain amount of calories per month or you would have to do a certain amount of exercise per month or something yeah. like that something yeah. just to try and like then you could try okay because loneliness doesn't on its own it doesn't feel like it doesn't say a lot like there's still like a lot of different things that could um if just because they're lonely what what is the reasons from from being lonely to getting diabetic is there something in between or is it literally just yeah. because of loneliness but That's i imagine right. it's very hard to be like be experience the feeling of loneliness like a real real feeling of loneliness and then still be you know proactive in terms of what i eat how I behave, how many times I exercise, because I would imagine if you like really, really feel lonely that you're like, there's no one you can talk to. I don't, I don't think, imagine, I don't imagine you, f you feel that you are full of energy and you want to like do all of these things. So it would be like really hard to, to have, to create this, uh, this cohort that you're talking about that, yeah. you know, you, okay. So, so you're going to feel lonely for 10 years, but please, please maintain a healthy diet and at least a half an hour exercise every second day you know i think it would be i think it would be very hard but yeah maybe uh maybe some people have some more insight to it maybe there are some uh, jordan petersons out there who, who know uh, <laughs> what's going on between the loneliness and diabetes but yeah i thought it was interesting the study came out in the right time in the right moment now that we all have to uh start mm -hmm. uh being at homes and you know even in our lab we only come into the lab when the when we have to yeah mo most it's of the just time, so. um i know this isn't anything related but um uh it's funny now they've brought in face masks now in the, in the netherlands yeah and, I was... uh, it's just like now we, they're just like out of nowhere they're like oh yeah we it works now <laughs> so yeah. just wear it yeah like, i was up to now they were just like no we're not gonna it's not gonna do it and then they're just like yeah we are like why did they make, take so many months to decide why did it decide now what was the straw that broke the camel's back yeah we i don't know well i've been i've psyched i've cycled to work today with my mask and it was it was fine i survived oh what you actually cycled with a mask on i did yeah why i, was, I just wanted to see if i'm gonna become uh anti-masker but i didn't it's okay you can you can cycle with your mask on it's fine you can walk outside with your mask on it's fine yeah but i still i still feel like it's not necessary it's more like enclosed spaces yeah but like you know i was cycling it was early morning nobody was out i was like okay let's put on the mask on and let's see if i'm gonna you know have some negative feelings or it's gonna be bother me that much and mm. it doesn't really bother me it's okay it's not irritating so yeah. it's just wear the mask when you have to wear yeah. the wear the wear the mask yeah yeah um yeah so that was it is that all is there anything else that's pretty that's pretty much all the only thing that i can say about this is like i believe there are some people that's gonna be like you know like extra and even though they don't feel lonely they could be like oh my god i feel so lonely i really do and like that that can like skew 
your your cohort if you have like people who like over exaggerate because mm. there is like loads of people who like want to be special it's like i'm so lonely you don't even believe it but i you don't know. think you would over exaggerate if you're lonely you're generally like i'm lonely yeah but like if you're not lonely and you just want to like just have to, you just want to receive the compassion from other oh, people okay. be like oh, i'm so lonely like i'm really lonely but anyway, yeah, that was that 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 was that was my take on diabetes, on working with stem cells and developing dish on a, a a disease on a dish system, and you know, looking at some kind of environmental factors that can uh, predispose you or that can trigger developing of diabetes. So one of these is is lonely, loneliness, apparently. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was that was interesting. Um, Thank so yeah, you. Try try don't be lonely. No. Yeah. Uh, yeah just quality over uh, quantity guys quality yeah. over quantity so uh yeah that was today's episode um so i hope you enjoyed our talk about the new rapid testing maybe what what do you think do you think it's useful to have these tests or is there still too much of a danger um and what do you think as well about loneliness do you think there might be a risk factor any of you people who are listening are lonely um, and if you resonate with what Tom was saying, yeah, reach out to us on our Instagram, yeah. skeptically inclined on Twitter, and and if you want even to email us, uh, let us know. We'll try and get back to you as well. Yeah, skeptically inclined at gmail dot com. Again, skeptically with a C. Yeah, and I think uh, I think you covered all our social media. Um, so next week, um, we have a really exciting guest coming on. Um, his name is Mark Abrams. Yes. And if you heard to our trailer, we talked about the improbable Nobel Prize. Well, Mark Abrams is the, I suppose, the founder in a way of the Nobel improbable Nobel Prize. Maybe I'm wrong, but he's heavily involved. So the the winners for 2020 were announced uh, a week or two ago, and uh, he's going to come on and discuss. The, we're going to discuss the winners with him, and it's going to be a bit of a fun laugh and it's super it's going exciting to be, yeah we're both super excited um he's calling all the way from boston right yeah yeah so um if you have any questions you want us to ask um please we'll we're going to link i think the the, the articles on our on our social media yes we will. So you can have a read of them as well the titles and if there's anything you wanted us to ask him yeah please let us know um and yeah we're we're hoping it's going to be a good episode. Yeah, so. just just to tell you guys like how big this person is, it has its own Wikipedia. How many of you have its own <laughs> Wikipedia page? None of you. So that's what's up. <laughs> yeah, you know you made it when you have a Wikipedia page. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. So uh, yeah, um, hopefully you'll tune in next time. Um, and yeah, stay skeptical and chat to you the next time. Yeah, stay skeptical. Bye bye.